0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of the lowdown. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Blaine McKenna to discuss his coaching journey today. Blaine, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be here.
0: Blaine, I suppose, where to begin? For a young man such as yourself, coaching in 11 different countries, five different continents, where in the world are you at this present time?
1: I'm in Phuket in Thailand as we speak.
0: And how are things over there at the moment?
1: Yeah, they're not too bad. Like we're quite lucky compared to the rest of the world. There's a few restrictions came in yesterday, but nothing that really affects affects my day-to-day life too much. We haven't got too many cases in Phuket. Thailand's not doing it. We had about 13,000 cases today, so in central Thailand, it's, it's not as good, but down south, we're not too bad, thankfully.
0: Okay, and how long have you been in Thailand?
1: Um, well, in this spell, of Phuket, I've been here around a year, but previously I was here for 18 18 months in a previous role.
0: And I suppose, where did this expedition begin, Blaine? Obviously, we spoke off camera, you're a young man like myself, 29 years of age, but you have quite the wealth of experience. But growing up in Northern Ireland, where where did this odyssey begin?
1: Yeah, I've obviously always played football from a young age and always loved the game, but when I was growing up, well, I went to, I was on trial at a club in League Two and things, and that didn't work out. I broke my ankle just before my exams, and that kind of pushed me down the academic route. Because I would never have had a career as a professional footballer anyway, so then that was a great opportunity to start coaching. But I didn't really see it as a career initially, because especially in Northern Ireland, there weren't many full-time roles. There weren't many opportunities. So when I was at university, at the end of the first year, we were able to go to the US and coach abroad for the summer. And that's when my eyes kind of opened up that I realized that it was a career and you could travel out of it as well. It's just something that I really enjoyed. And that's just basically led on after that. So as soon as I went to America, I kind of got the bug and I came back, finished my studies, and then I set the goal, the coaching five countries. So then I've been able to go and surpass that now. So it's yeah, it's just funny how how life works, isn't it? You never really know what's going to happen, but it's along your journey, different things happen, then you you meet people and then opportunities come up.
0: Yeah, exactly. And we spoke off camera about tenure plans in the football industry; they're quite redundant. But I suppose you know, in reflection, I mean, there must have been a seed planted at some stage. Um, was there anything in hindsight that separated you from other coaches growing up, or other coaches that you would have embarked in university courses with? Um,
1: I think I had a clear vision. So, for example, like at university and things, a lot of people were just going there to party. They didn't really know what the end goal was. They went there just basically to pass exams and try and get through. Whereas me, I knew where I wanted to go. I knew I wanted to coach. I knew I wanted to go abroad. So everything I was learning, I was kind of applying it. And then also as well, I didn't have much of a social life back then. I was just coaching seven days a week, trying to get as much experience as I could. So I wasn't really having the kind of traditional university experience. It was a bit different. And I was taking kind of every opportunity I could to go and volunteer at like Irish Football Association camps to kind of get my name in there to meet people. And then I ended up turning the paid work a bit further down the line. And then I created a network as well, meeting people. And then more kind of opportunities came from that. But it was was just kind of having an idea of where I wanted to go and being inspired and motivated by it. Because I wasn't a very good student when I was younger, but whenever it started getting linked to sports science and things, when it was linked to sport, I was able to learn a lot better. And then things kind of just went went from there I was really curious
0: it's quite interesting to hear you talk about your university experience it's quite at odds with what we've grown up to believe you know back home in Ireland whereas you go to university parity and then you, you, you set that side of your journey away you embark on a full-time career and that's it really but having that you know self-determination that self-determination that motivation that dedication that you speak about Glenn I suppose that made itself clear in you went back to college too. You did a master's in psychology, am I right? Yeah. So, the human brain and motivation and having a clear vision, that was something you were always interested in?
1: Yeah, well, it's kind of when I was coming through as a footballer, like technically, tactically, and physically, I was quite good, but psychologically, I wasn't the best. I was a bit of a perfectionist, and none the coaches could really help me with that. And then during my studies as well, like my research, my undergraduate in sports science was in knowledge and perceptions of sports psychology and football. And that kind of showed me that sports psychology has been underutilized. And that was also what I'd found in my career as well. So as I was coming through, I was either going to do a master's degree in sports nutrition or sports psychology. That's the kind of thing that pushed me over because I feel even education as well, psychology is not something that's covered enough. We're not giving people the tools to try and become the best versions of themselves especially nowadays with all the mental health issues around the world. So I felt like psychology is something you can make a real difference with in people's lives across contexts as well. So it wasn't just football. That's something that really inspired me.
0: I suppose if we refer back to self-determination theory, you know, a big crux of that plan is living in the present moment, you know, in relation to attaining your goals. I mean, as a young player, you spoke about, you know, having those initial struggles. But as a young coach, somebody who's gone abroad, um, you're throwing yourself at challenges, you know, jumping into the deep end, so to speak. Have you ever struggled with that? You know, living in the present moment, you know, in relation to achieving goals, you would have set yourself like coaching in five different countries.
1: Yeah, well, even even when I was back home as well, because I had set the goal of living in five countries, working in five countries. So that meant I was always kind of thinking about the future and I wasn't kind of planning for the moment. So I had those long-term goals. I was picturing myself coaching these countries. I printed out pictures of the countries I wanted to coach in. So I saw them on the wall every day. So it's part of my visualization. I saw head coaches work in different countries. So I was looking at these things all the time. And obviously that, that was exciting me and motivating me to get my work done because before I wasn't the best academic, this inspired me to do that. But it meant I wasn't living in the moment and catering for the moment as well. And it's even the same when I moved away, when I was living in places I wasn't so happy. I was thinking about the future again. And when you're doing that, it's not... It's not healthy because you're not really caring for yourself in that moment. You're not kind of doing things, planning for the moment. So it's not it's not the best, best
0: approach, to be honest. And would you say over the course of your coaching tenure blend, having spent so much time abroad now, you're perhaps a more rounded person, more balanced? Whereas before, would you have been, say, like solely focused on football, perhaps?
1: Yeah, when I first moved abroad, I was purely career orientated. And then I lived in a place where the air quality wasn't very good. My throat closed. I literally couldn't, I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. I couldn't even swallow my own saliva. So I was really in a bad way. And I was by myself in this apartment in the city. And I just felt really alone. And it was kind of, I was even Googling how many days can survive without eating or drinking because I didn't want to go to the hospital. I was in a country where English wasn't the first language. That's kind of the last place you want to go to. So it's when you experience things like that, living in environments that aren't the best, that kind of makes you realise that things are more important. And also now like I'm living in Phuket, like, this is one of the most beautiful places in the world. This was a conscious decision. And now I'm kind of focusing on creating a life that excites me every day so I don't have to live in the future. Obviously, I've got an idea where I want to go, but I'm kind of looking more at values and things and then kind of setting short-term goals linked to those values. And then I believe if I do those kind of things, if I live the values that I believe in, and good things and opportunities will come from those. And also as well, like, I've had things happen in my family life which makes you realize that like tomorrow is not promised to anyone. So it's important to try and live that life in the moment now. Cause that's the most important thing. Cause like no one's promised tomorrow kind of that kind of idea.
0: Yeah. And I suppose one ring of thought that has come into my head just there while you were speaking was Jordan Peterson. And um, he's somebody who speaks about yourself. You know that you should be looking to live your life as a community yourselves so over time. You know, don't throw away your past, live in the present, but, you know, correlate what you're doing in the present with your future self. And I suppose you speak about, we're not only speaking about football here, we're speaking about a life journey, we're speaking about, you know, struggles and successes and what's made you along the way. But I suppose the motivation that got you into coaching in the first place, Blaine, has that changed or is that significantly altered? Or is it perhaps even the same now, 10, 11, 12 years later?
1: Yeah, well, I suppose as you progress, you learn more about different roles. You work in different environments. So you kind of see what roles are suited to you and what kind of opportunities are available. So as I said before, I was purely career-oriented when I set out. But when I was younger, I always envisioned myself being a head coach. Whereas as time progresses, that kind of changes a bit. And kind of the people that I work with, they've gone in the head coach positions and it kind of changes what your goals are. And then also in terms of like the digital era and stuff like the kind of things you can do online as well because like football is a difficult career like there's no stability and only the top level coaches are the ones that are enough to sustain themselves long term. So like initially I was only thinking about coaching whereas now like I'm thinking about other ideas or other opportunities and career things that can kind of sustain me and help me live like anywhere in the world kind of thing. So it's it's a lot more balanced. Now I've got a lot wider view of things and kind of how the world works and what opportunities are available.
0: And in terms of assuming a position at a club, then I mean, what would be some of the core non-negotiables or values you would be looking for?
1: Um, I suppose having that openness. So it's like being open-minded to take on new ideas and also being open to conversations and things as well, like the emotional, emotional side of the game. And then being being supportive as well so supporting the players being person person-centered and then being passionate about what you do you come in with that energy and trying to engage the group every day and obviously being structured in your approach as well in terms of having a clear idea and a clear philosophy of why you're doing things to try and get the best from people and then trying to create a positive environment where everyone can kind of excel within their roles
0: and Are those traits, those characteristics, is that something perhaps which you've discovered along your coaching journey, which you've witnessed, or is it perhaps is it some stuff perhaps on your own playing journey, as you spoke, growing up in Northern Ireland, was it stuff, was it those hard things those coaches couldn't give you at that time? Yeah, it was just role factors
1: or environments and the experiences we've had that kind of biases how we see the world. So it's these kind of things develop from seeing what works in practice, learning from other people and how they approach, approach things. And then also just positive and negative examples as well, seeing how other people work and other industries as well, seeing how people work. So it's, it's kind of a mixture, a mixture of things that come together and what approach you feels best. And obviously looking at research and things as well. It's a combination of factors, experiences, looking at others and then research.
0: Yeah, because you do strike me and you do strike plenty of others, Glenn, as someone who's, you know, highly articulate, self-aware, emotionally intelligent. And what has personally struck me about your journey today is that when you've gone abroad to these countries, it just hasn't been the coaching positions. You've assumed great responsibility, be it academy director, head of academy coach and technical director. I mean, for a young man such as yourself, what was that journey like assuming a leadership position?
1: in terms of how I got myself into that position or what it was like when I obtained those positions.
0: In terms of once you've stepped in the door, I mean, what does that journey look like?
1: Yes, it's it's difficult, so it is, because like, especially in Thailand as well, like you have this idea of the way things should be done back home, but then sometimes we land in different environments. It's like using Thailand as an example, I inherited a really bad situation. So I'd been hired by the president's son as a quick fix. So he thought bringing a foreigner, we're trying to fix everything. But that's, we I mean, know, especially in youth football and things, that's not, not how it works. So when I came in, the, like the teams were imbalanced. So the, the present son fell out with the U17 head coach. So then the coach left and then a load of the players left as well. So he pushed all the 15-year-olds into the 17-year-olds, is group. So all, of, all the teams were imbalanced. And he was, the president's son was essentially the academy director before I came. So he was never in the office, so the coaches could do what they wanted. They turned up the pitch whenever they wanted. So coming into an environment where the coaching standards are very low, when the teams are imbalanced, it was very, very difficult. And trying to understand a new culture as well, because in Asia, for example, you've got the age hierarchy. So I was going in as youngest member of staff. But I was the boss. That didn't go down very well. So there's a number of different hierarchies, and then people are getting paid a certain salary, doing a certain amount of work. So I'm trying to come in and raise the bar that's very very difficult to do so that was a really really difficult experience but eventually what we had to do was because the coaches weren't prepared to basically plan sessions review sessions I wasn't asking them to do a ridiculous amount of work and we had to get rid of coaches we brought new ones in and set the bar high from day one they're kind of loyal to me because I gave them a job and after the end of the season we managed to get through that season at the end of the season we were able to get the players in three age groups there's so many underlying factors and especially when you're coaching abroad and doing these things abroad it's very very difficult it's you don't get taught these things in the course and there's other aspects as well like people wouldn't always tell you the truth because there's as i said before but a hierarchy they'll never talk to in terms of the hierarchy they'll never talk or tell the truth to someone above them in the hierarchy so you're trying to ask them questions to find out how they are how things are and they will never tell you the truth so Trying to do these things, it's, it's very, very difficult. But you learn a lot from that experience and it stands you in good stead for the future because you probably never have to experience a situation like that again. So it's, it's one of the best learning curves you can have.
0: And in hindsight, Glenn, is there anything you would have done differently in that situation?
1: Um, obviously not taking the job, which would have been easier. <laughs> um, no, like I, don't, I don't regret any situation before. I couldn't have known because it was the first time I worked in Thailand. I've been in China and things, but people think Asian culture is the same everywhere. It's not. It's very different. Even within certain countries, the regional culture is different. Within the organisation, the organisational culture is different. So, like, I just I was very young going into that position and 25 years old running a top flight academy at a professional club. It's not the kind of opportunity you typically are going to get. So it was, it's kind of an opportunity you had to take. And now I take the lessons from that, and I don't regret anything because. Like it's the best learning experience I've ever had. It was, it was absolutely incredible for my development, not only as a coach and an academy director, but also as a person as well. And the contacts I've been able to develop from working in that club has led the future opportunities after that as well. So it's, yeah, it was an amazing experience.
0: And then, you know, from your own perspective, Blaine, I'm interested to diverge a bit or divulge a bit more. You know, emotionally, you know, taking perhaps that first leadership position abroad in a foreign country, you know, having to use a translator, you know, um, hiring a new staff of coaches. I suppose that's one thing they don't teach in the coaching courses, you know, when they speak about theory versus practice. It's what you feel inside that inner emotion, you know, be it fight or flight response, be it imposter syndrome. I mean, for you, was it, I suppose we have spoke earlier on about how important the psychological impact or... Basically, important psychology is in coaching. But for you, was that a daily battle? Was it weekly? Or were you just kind of blinkers on, go for it every day?
1: Yeah, it's not only that as well. It's also landing in a city that no one speaks English. There's no foreigners. Like, nothing can prepare you for that. And it was, it was very, very challenging. And also quite lonely as well, because there's, there's not people off the pits to hang out with. Because And even in the staff, the players, no one spoke English. Only my translator. And trying to find a good translator. at the outset was very, very challenging. It was very difficult. So, yeah, it was, it was very, very, very challenging. Sorry, what was the question again? I'm just going on a bit of a tangent
0: there. No, I was just saying, like, emotionally, you know, from an individual level, we speak about, you know, theory versus practice. You know, what coaching courses don't teach you. I mean, that's fight or flight response or imposter syndrome, which every one of us gets from time to time. How did you go about, I suppose, challenging that? Was it a day-to-day basis, something you were consciously aware of? Or was it more of, I'm going to put the blinkers on, I'm going to go full throttle at this challenge?
1: In terms of personally with the players?
0: Um, personally.
1: Yeah, it was, yeah, it was difficult because, like as you said before, like imposter syndrome thing, things like, how am I in this position? But... It doesn't matter what level you get to, no matter how much experience you have. When you get put, when you get put into a position, you always doubt yourself. Sometimes that's only natural. It's just how you move beyond that. And once you've had those experiences in place, so I've had those experiences before, the next one's not as difficult. And it's also understand that no one's perfect. Like even people like Arsene Wenger, I used to take confidence in hearing stories. But when he was out coaching the first ever Arsenal training session, he got tangled up in the ball bag and was falling over and things like he's quite clumsy. So it just shows you that no one's no one's perfect. And you just got to go in and you've just got to do your best in that role. And no matter what happens, as long as you've given it your best, as long as you try to do right by everyone, then you'll have no regrets. So it's just kind of basically following what you want to the best of your ability. And also looking after yourself as well, because that's something back then I wasn't very good at because I just kind of purely focused on the career. But I didn't have much of a life there. I go out, people be taking pictures of me. People will be following me around just because you're kind of the only foreigner. You're a bit of a celebrity in the area. So it was... It was difficult. You can't really go anywhere if like, I get noticed people taking pictures of you. So, yeah, it was a challenge on and off the pitch, but like the lessons and things you take from it and able to, even the difference we are able to make, like three of our players out in the hospital in one week, motorbike accidents, because kids at any age are allowed to ride motorbikes over there without helmets and things. So we renovated our truck. They give them a safe altern- alternative to get to the pitch. We gave them scholarships for education. I bought boots for some of the players. We brought the first ever coach education course because football doesn't really exist outside the main cities. So we brought a coach education course to Ubon, which they're still bringing there now. So it's kind of a legacy we have left in place. We're able to go in schools, get the first qualified coaches they've ever had before. So like in areas like that, where football is not as developed and where clubs don't have the same staff in place, you're in control of a lot more. So you can make a much bigger difference. So obviously trying to manage yourself is difficult, but when you start seeing these things being implemented and seeing you're making a real meaningful difference, you're getting players in the first team of things and that's important, but off the pitch as well in terms of educationally, in terms of safety, it's, yeah, it makes a real difference.
0: Just becomes a self-sustaining environment then. And, you know, in without any doubt, I'm pretty sure the players, the coaches you've surrounded yourself with would have taken great inspirations from your journey. But, um, I don't you know I'm not led to believe you're fluent in Thai Blaine. <laughs> Are you? Pumpo Thai,
1: Pumpo Thai gangmac. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, me I, and I it's to, like,
1: if I didn't if I didn't speak Thai there, I'd be very hungry because you go out, no one speaks English, so you have to speak some Thai. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's like me and my English, pretty limited, coming from the <laughs> west of Ireland. But um in terms of incorporating a game model then, um I suppose throughout your journey in Thailand. I mean, what was that process like using a translator, having to him having to interpret you, giving instructions to the players? Is, I mean, is that a process you've embedded thoroughly throughout your time in Thailand? Yeah,
1: that's, that's a massive challenge. So number one, finding a translator,
0: that's, that's difficult. And
1: finding a translator that can understand my accent as well. So like the pres- the president's son, I was very fortunate with the president's son because he was raised in New Zealand. So in terms of, like, I was talking before about culture and things, his mindset was very different kind of from the local mindset which helped me, and his English was very good. So initially he was my translator, but then f- thankfully I was able to get in a- another guy who studied in England. He studied a sports coaching degree in England. He came out to be my translator, and he was he was brilliant. Like, he was absolutely superb, so he was. So kind of looking at that, the kind of key thing you're looking at is... Like the players understand that the game's not great. Like the first match I went in and watched, they basically just sat back in a low block and they never able to get out of that. Like the centre backs were on top of the keeper's toes. You could see that they're just kind of, especially because the teams are imbalanced as well in terms of age groups and things. They weren't very progressive in their style of play. So in terms of implementing the game model, like language was such an important thing because I can't talk to any of the players. I remember my first game we are playing against Buriram United which is the biggest team in Thailand I was standing in the technical area, this technical area of this stadium and I'm like why am I standing here I can't talk to the players so I went and sat in the dugout and then my translator stood in the technical area and I just kind of fed messages for him but in the whole week leading up to that game not only was I trying to learn the players names because the names are very different out here uh, we tried to introduce trigger words so like words like, pros- like press drop step and then the translator would explain those kind of what we're looking at And that helped me as well because it showed whether his translations were good because you can't always guarantee what the translations are like. So one time I had a a translator and they didn't understand football. They spoke really good English, but they didn't speak football language. So the players, when they were explaining something, kept looking to me. And I'd explain it in Thai because they'd understand me more. Because when you work with someone after a while, you kind of understand what they're looking for and you can demonstrate things. And even some games, there was one game we're playing away in the Thai Youth League and uh, my translator went AWOL, it was the president's son, he just went missing it, didn't know where I was, so I'm standing in front of a group of like 18 players, and they can't speak English, my tie is pretty limited, so basically what I had to do was get cones out, and then move them around the floor, showing what we're looking for, and then the kind of leaders within the group would step up and explain to the rest, and the kind of message we're trying to get across, so initially it's very, very difficult, but After a number of months, it's a lot easier because they understand the messages you're working on. You can do demonstrations. You can draw diagrams in your notepad and show it to them, and they can kind of understand what's going on. So over time, almost by the end of my time there, I didn't need a translator. Obviously, I do for in terms of the depth of detail, but I can deliver a session without it just using basic Thai words, and they've understood the style of play and what we're looking for over a period of months.
0: You spoke about one of your role models earlier, playing an Arsene Wenger. And he's a quote from his book, which uh, Jonathan, Jonathan O'Neill, one of our good friends, sent to me recently. And he speaks about technical empathy, you know, that ability to relate to your teammate through the communication on a pass. You know, looking from the outside in and zooming out and looking at the big picture of football playing, how underappreciated is this form of nonverbal communication across the sport?
1: Yeah, it's massive. It's massive in elements, like the intercommunication between teammates and how they respond to certain passes and feedback and things, and also from the coaching. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely massive. And it's even in terms of how you introduce it in the session sometimes. Like I said, no one can talk within the session, so when you see what it's like, and then also trying to create awareness of it, because some players aren't always aware of how they react to things, they're quite emotional. They're trying to make them aware of what their body language and what, what messages it's sending other people, because it is such an important part of the game. And also coaches as well. Like what kind of example are you setting on the sideline? What message are you transferring to the players? And especially when you work in a place where they don't speak English. So you're having to kind of develop that relationship and even how they greet people as well, the greetings and things. Yeah, it's very different. But I think that side of things is so, so, so important because that's what the biggest form of communication is, nonverbal.
0: And are we on the right path with it at the moment or can we be doing more?
1: Yeah, we can always be doing, we can always be doing more, but it's anything like the psychological skills within the game. There's not a massive amount of emphasis on that because coaches are so busy trying to win the next match and trying to set teams up. That's the same in all pursuits as well, even in education and things like that. Always trying to get results so much so that they don't look at the process, and especially the psychological side of that, which obviously can have massive impacts, not only in their sports performance, but in other areas of life in education, friendships, relationships, everything.
0: And then I suppose aside from psychology, Glenn, is there anything you would have cross pollinated from any of the other social sciences, sports or different industries, which you've looked to adapt and incorporate into your coaching or mythology? Yeah, well, storytelling is
1: quite a big one. Just like the importance of stories because like, everyone has an inner narrative of in my story. Like I'm a football coach that's coached around the world. Everyone's kind of got a story in their head about who they are and their identity. So storytelling is kind of something i've looked into a bit which is interesting and just how we can tell different stories how we can engage people how we can make people believe in things the kind of art of nego- negotiation from storytelling so i think that's that's a pretty big one and other other ones just looking at kind of business industry leaders and how they've been able to change things different types of leadership like netflix like the guy that formed netflix he's released a book on culture and things which is really interesting i've been watching a lot of documentaries on him recently so there's always things you can learn from other, other environments, but especially storytelling, leadership has been quite a big
0: one for me. The storytelling element is huge, and it's something I want to touch upon, Glenn, because, you know, you've certainly changed the narrative amongst Irish coaches and coaches in the North over what is actually possible, you know, given your young age of 29. But I suppose, like, if you were to be, let's say, put back into a leadership role within the Northern Irish Football Association back at home now, Is there anything, is there any big structural elements or is there anything which you would look to change perhaps in the development of young players, the development of coaches which you would have learned from your experiences today?
1: Yeah, well, that's a a difficult one to answer because I haven't been home for about six years, so I'm not sure what their kind of current practices are, but especially the Irish Football Association, they're doing a a good job in terms of when I went back, to my coaching licences and the elite model they kind of developed there, sending quite a few players into England and things, which... Jim Magilton was leaving before, now he's moved on down south, so yeah, it seems they're doing a pretty good job, but obviously you can bring different elements into it and in, like the psychological side of things, but no, even when I went back, like Michael Caulfield, like Michael Caulfield's brilliant, he does a bit of work for Brentford in terms of sports psychology, like when I was doing my A license, it was a lot more heavy in the psychological side of things, so yeah, I think they're doing a pretty good job, but yeah, it's difficult Difficult in answers, I haven't been within that environment in quite, quite a number of years, it's changed a lot since I've been away.
0: And just to close, a few more questions, blend but what three characteristics would you use to describe yourself now as a coach?
1: It's um, a good question. Like, I suppose I'm very open in terms of open to new experiences, open to learning new ideas, which is part of the curiosity. I'm always trying to read and try to learn things and quite creative as well, trying to create new elements of things in terms of everything I learned, trying to put into a structure and seeing how I can use it to help people as well um I like to think quite supportive as well supportive sorry so I was talking about like being person-centered and things trying to find a way to help help people and it's basically pas- passionate like I really love the subject of what we're talking about and trying to develop myself and trying to keep learning and trying to help people because that's what it's all about at the end of the day if you create an environment where you're helping people and giving people insight to different ideas and they're seeing the benefits of that that's kind of what it's all about isn't it helping people to improve and enjoy the experience and hopefully everyone will benefit from that
0: of course and with those three characteristics blend? would they be drastically different to say when you begun your coaching Odyssey abroad six years ago
1: um it might be pretty similar but how I do it might be different so obviously as you get older as you get more experienced then you kind of fine-tune the way you deliver things and you're a bit more self-aware over time that's another one for me that like i'm very self-aware i'm kind of my own biggest critic so after sessions of things I'll always be reflecting looking at what i can do better better for next time so like over time as i become more knowledgeable these kind of things will the way you implement it will be better the more experience you get will be more effective how you do it but in terms of core principles as a coach it hasn't changed much it's more terms in terms of like life balance and things that's changed i try and have a bit more holistic view and also be a bit more caring for myself as well, in terms of my lifestyle and the environment I'm living in and kind of a self-talking things, how hard I am on myself. That's kind of been the biggest change. So like, the values are pretty similar, but it's just how I implement them and how I deliver them as changed over time for your experience.
0: You spoke about legacy, albeit briefly earlier on, blend But your fellow countryman, Brendan Rogers, he had a great he had a great quote about it before. He says people misinterpret it. They usually speak about legacy and it's about what people see. But for him, it's about what people feel. What do you hope, what is legacy to you, Glenn, and what do you hope your legacy will be?
1: Um, It's a difficult one to think about, but I suppose I just want people to feel that I helped them and I cared about them. I think caring is such an important thing because you can try and impart as much knowledge you want to someone, but if you haven't developed that relationship, that connection, then it's not going to be as effective. So it's kind of just helping people feel supported and cared for and that's pretty important in all areas of life not
0: just not just coaching. And finally to close I mean for anyone out there that wishes to embark on a similar pathway to yourself, self what advice would you have for them?
1: Yeah well, that was the thing like when I was coming through there weren't many role models so try and find think about where you want to go to try and find people that have done it and then see what their journey was but the key thing you're coming through just try and get as many different experiences as you can so like I've coached from three years old all the way up to 30-year-old senior internationals. So it's just trying to get a different experiences along the spectrum that help you become a better coach and also tailoring those experiences to what you want, where you want to go in the future so it'll give you more opportunity to get in those roles. And the kind of thing I said before about being like open-minded and curious to learn because that's, that's a key thing is new information is coming out all the time. So it's really important to try and develop yourself and trying to find mentors as well. As I said before, people have kind of been in that journey and see what you can take from them and try to surround yourself with people that you can learn from and improve, whether that's for your career or you just be observing, asking people if you go going to watch a few trading sessions. And one of the biggest things for me as well has been reflections. So trying to reflect on your practice and seek feedback from other people. Then you're constantly trying to improve. So you're not just delivering the same sessions over and over again. And at the end of the day, just come back and focus on the individual because everything's about people, relationships. If you can develop good relationships with your coaching staff, and your players, you learn, you help them improve but Then also create more opportunities as well. Because like for me, all my, basically the majority of my roles have come through networking and people will contact me about roles. Just for example, like the one in Thailand, become the Academy Director. It's because I helped a coach or a physio with his A license course for a year before. I didn't expect anything for, in return. So kind of just be kind to people, give your time to people, and then you don't know what that'll lead to in the future, because your relationships, your network, that's one of the most important things as a coach, because you can be the most knowledgeable coach in the world. if no one knows about you or knows your work, then you're less likely to get opportunities. So I suppose those, those would be a good starting point for any aspiring coach.
0: Lynn, it's certainly been in, in, very insightful speaking with you and very inspirational for those listening. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of coaches here listening that are going to take plenty of golden nuggets from what you've just divulged over the past 30, 40 minutes. But um, should anyone wish to contact you, Blaine, where's best to reach you online? Uh,
1: My DMs are open on Twitter. So at Blaine McKenna, 77.
0: Fantastic. I'll link
1: Instagram, BMCK77.
0: Brilliant. I'll be sure to link both in the show notes below. Blaine, thank you for coming on. Top man.
1: Thank you, Connor.